0: This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. Each year on the 8th of March, International Women's Day is celebrated around the globe. It's a day to mark the social, economic, cultural and political achievement of women. This message reflects the ambitions of Sustainable Development Goal number 5, which aims to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls by 2030. Geographers are interested in what space and place mean to people, and feminist geographers have shown that space and place are gendered, which often renders certain people feeling out of place. Historically women have not always achieved equal access to space. And on International Women's Day, we celebrate the ongoing achievements and challenges faced around the world in a bid for equality. On today's podcast, I am meeting with Dr. Sarah L. Evans from the Royal Geographical Society with IBG, whose PhD research at the University of the West of England investigated women's expeditionary work at the RGS between 1913 and 1970. We'll be discussing why it is so important to document women's histories and, of course, their geographies. So we may take for granted now the role of the exceptional women that bring geography to the classroom, our teachers, our lecturers and
1: explorers, but that's not always been the case, has it? Why is this? So I think... In terms of thinking about this, um, it's worth looking back over the history of kind of geography as a discipline, um, of the RGS, the Royal Geographical Society, as an institution. So, as you prob- as our listeners probably know, um, the RGS is founded in 1830, and the kind of the big thing that it's about is about pr- the promotion of geographical science, the advancement of geography. Um, And then over the course of the 19th century, you have geography kind of coming into being as a a discipline, um, whether that's in the universities and the establishment of geography departments in the late 19th and early 20th century in the universities, um, or as kind of a, a subject that's studied in its own right at schools and in lots of other kind of professional areas as well. But going all the way back to kind of 1830 and over that kind of long period through to kind of the mid to late 20th century, I think it's the women are not being recognised as geographers because we're talking about a very different world and very different society uh, with very different norms I mean obviously in recent weeks we've been hearing a lot about the centenary of some women being awarded the right to vote in 1918 um, and so the fact that for a large part of kind of geography's first century that women did not have the right to vote they didn't have the right to participate in public political life um, to, um, with the same degree there also were limits on women's ability to own property that married women couldn't um, own their own property until the Married Women's Property Act in 1870 and 1882. So we're looking at a very very different context in which as well as kind of what we might now think of as kind of implicit barriers to women taking part in particular activities, so kind of like bias in society, um, unconscious bias, all these kind of things, there were formal institutional bars and barriers to women being able to take part in a lot of activities and a lot of public life and being able to take part in the workplace. Now, of course, that's also never been the case for working-class women. Working-class women have always been part of, kind of public life in terms of going out to work in different spaces. But for a lot of women, there are these formal institutional barriers. Women simply did not have the same access to opportunities as their male counterparts, colleagues, friends, husbands, um, through a large part of this period. Um, so, as you say, there are so many wonderful women working in geography today. I mean, there always have been, going right back through this period that I'm talking about in terms of the nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, but there were definitely barriers in their way that their male counterparts did not have. When were women granted permanent admittance then to the Fellowship of the Royal Geographical Society? Yeah. So, so as you say, like one of those institutional barriers is um, being allowed to become a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and similar organisations like, say, the Regional Geographical Societies. As well. And um, this is often a kind of a more complicated story than often gets presented um, in terms of its. It's one of these kind of situations where, as so often in the struggle for equality for all different kinds, types of groups, it's two steps forward, one step back. So, there were long running debates over the course of the 19th century about women's ability to be geographers, to kind of to do geography in lots of different ways. And it's actually surprisingly early that women, that they first, the RGS as an institution first start talking about admitting women as fellows. It's right into the kind of the 1860s. And of course, this is in the context of these wider debates about um, emancipation of women. I mentioned the Married Women's Property Act, uh, but the the suffrage movement is also still a full swing over this period of the later 19th century so it's a long-running debate within the society it's long part of a much longer-running debates um, in society UK society more broadly and of course in other countries as well and it's important to recognize that during this period women were doing geography you had women who were traveling and exploring and a good example from the later 19th century Um, is Isabella Bird, who's important within these debates and within this history. Um, You've got women writing geographical textbooks. Um, Mary Somerville, who's well-remembered today for for being something of a polymath, she was active in a whole range of different disciplines, including geography, but also mathematics and physical science, wrote um, a best-selling textbook that went into several editions on physical geography, which for a long time was the standard text for physical geography within the UK. Um, And that uh, that was published in the 1860s. Women were organising and supporting and funding expeditions. Um, so Lady Jane Franklin, who was the first woman to receive the Society's Gold Medal in 1860, Mary Somerville was the second in 1869, um, helped to organise, support, and fund a whole programme of expeditions going in search of her husband, John Franklin's Lost Expedition, the Northwest Passage. Um, and from and in terms of kind of less kind of extraordinary or outstanding examples. Um, from women were very active in attending kind of geographical lectures reading the latest geographical literature all through this period um, and in terms of the Royal Geographical Society uh, they had the right to attend lectures um, as the guest of male fellows but they were able to go to RGS lectures from 1853 which in the context of this story you think that's really quite early so these are kind of long running debates and um, by the early 1890s because so many women are active in geography, the fact that women are being recognised by the RGS with its medals um, the governing body of the RGS, the Council, and kind of the trustees of the organisation, make the decision that yes, it's time to admit qualified women to the fellowship, in line with a number of other learned societies, including the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, but also a lot of the regional geographical societies where women could become members. This is about women both demonstrating their ability and their capability, but it's also, as often happens with these things, there's some more cynical reasons going on in that terms that fellowship numbers are declining for the society in this period, and they see that if they allow all these women geographers to join, um, that's a welcome financial boost situation. Um, This is something that we'll come back to again and again. Um, So the council make the decision, and it's approved by a large part of the membership, that yes, it's time to admit women. And so between 1892 and 1893, you have 22 women, including Isabella Bird, who I mentioned earlier, who are admitted to the fellowship of the society. Um, But then again, as so often happens with these things, you get a backlash from within one part of the society's membership, um, who are extremely anxious about this development, and kind of band together to stop this nonsense at once. Um, so you get this this backlash, this kind of this small but determined cohort, primarily among the London-based membership, who are absolutely aghast at the idea that women are going to be allowed to join. It comes out of the sense that so. As, as you may know, the Royal Geographical Society starts off as a dining club for gentlemen as in common with so many other learned societies in the early 19th century. And that kind of the atmosphere of this society being still, at least partly for a lot of its members, particularly the London based members, that it's a gentleman's dining club, it's a gentleman's club. It's a very gendered space in the sense it's a very men-only space. It's a place they can go to get away from their domestic commitments, etc. They're wanting to preserve that particular space um, which is valuable to them. Some of the kind of literature on this also so it makes it very clear that as well as this being a question of gender this is a question of class because one of the important groups of women who could be admitted to the Society well, of so who are eminently qualified is geography school teachers who are becoming increasingly important in this period in the late um, 19th century in the 1880s 1890s um, and who are largely coming from a lower-class background than a lot of the kind of gentlemen, in inverted commas, who are leading this backlash. So I think there's definitely elements of kind of class anxiety as well as gender anxiety going on here. So this kind of reactionary cohort um, start a campaign, they force a special general meeting, um, and although the kind of postal vote from across the the membership across the UK were like, yes, let's admit women, the outcome of this London-based special general meeting is that they vote against allowing women to continue to be members. So the 22 women who'd already been admitted um, are allowed to stay, um, but they say, no, no, no more ladies, no thank you. Um, And it gets closed for 20 years, essentially. It's not quite a closed question. Um, in that people continue to dis- debate this, to discuss this, there's lots of uh, women who make inquiries about would well, I would like to be a fellow, I'm a geographer, I'm really interested in your work, and it's like no 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 ladies can't be fellows and um, and it's not till 1913 um, that they make the decision the council again acts unilaterally in terms of, right, it's, it's, it's time to recognise the women, it's time to admit women as fellows again. And interestingly, this is being led in 1913 by Lord Curzon, who's the president at the time, um, who had been one of the strongest opponents of women being allowed to join the society 20 years earlier. Again, this is for a number of reasons in terms of lots of women of been proving their geographical credentials, Um, they've been lecturing to the Society, they've been publishing in its journals, they've been being awarded its medals, um, they've been demonstrating their expertise. But it's very interesting that around this time is when the society moves to its current home at Lowther Lodge um, in South Kensington. As part of that move, they've got an ambitious building programme of works. The reason that they came to Lowther Lodge was to build a large lecture theatre for for the society's lectures. And so in order to do that, they need to be able to fund it. And although they've got lots of ideas for different income streams, boosting the fellowship and the fellowship subscriptions is definitely going to help with this. And I think it's a mark of how many women had been waiting in the wings in that that first year, 1930, to 1914, 163 women joined the Fellowship of the Society, and it continues to grow from there. Um, and There's many notable women included in that cohort. One of the ones who I've been interested in in my own research is, of course, Gertrude Bell, who's the famous archaeologist, explorer, spy, diplomat, um, who's incredibly interesting. Can you just tell me a bit more, then, about Gertrude Bell? Why is she one of your she's, trailblazers? She's really interesting. really interesting. She's very complex figure. So she studies uh, history. Uh, she studies history at Oxford and is, does outstandingly well but obviously at that time um, in some of the universities women could study for the degrees but they weren't awarded them. So she gets in very very high marks um, but doesn't get awarded the degree and she's from a very wealthy family from the north northeast of england um, and so for a period after oxford she's a socialite um, and she does a lot of traveling as part of this, so as well as being based in london she does a lot of traveling and it's in the kind of the turn of the century period around 1900 she starts to travel seriously in the middle east particularly in syria but also in arabia um, and while she's doing it it's not always clear that she's outright spying. I mean, she's she's carrying out archaeological research, she's she's talking to local people, but as she's doing this, she's building these enormous complex networks of contacts within the region. She's finding out who actually is where and who's important in which particular um, area, which, which tribes are kind of in control, where, who, who, the, who the important people are within that network of people. And so when you get the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, um, and as people probably know, one of the kind of the big forgotten theatres of that war is in the Middle East and in terms of the war with the Ottoman Empire um, and that part of the First World War, um, she becomes very important because of that network of contacts and because of that very detailed local knowledge that she's gained over years of expeditions and travel. And so, th- I mean, that's a couple of years after she's been admitted to the society as a fellow um, and she's been awarded the Gill Memorial Prize um, in recognition amongst many other achievements. Um, so she's very renowned as, in terms of her study of languages, um, her archaeological knowledge, but her political expertise as well. And so she becomes the only woman political officer in the kind of Middle Eastern campaign um, in 1916, and she's stationed in Basra and takes an important part in the kind of the war effort in the Middle East, but particularly Iraq and Baghdad and Basra. But She becomes particularly significant after this war work, in the post-war period, when of course you get the um, the Paris Peace Conference and the discussion of what's going to happen to these countries which were part of the Ottoman Empire, which but which are being carved up by the European colonial powers, particularly Britain and France, and she plays a very very, significant role in the mapping of the modern, in what would become the modern Middle East, and kind of advocating for Iraq to take a particular shape. And so, on. she plays a very, very important part at that conference, and that's where her kind of contemporary significance really comes from. So, she's recognised in her own lifetime as contributing enormously in all these different areas. That the kind of in terms of long-term impact, because of her involvement in those processes of draw- of drawing up the borders and everything that that's caused for kind of for good or ill in the years since, in terms of the impact that's had on the modern Middle East. So she's a really interesting figure, but what, fa- what I find particularly fascinating about is that she's very much a kind of man's woman, she does not get on very well with other women, she is against women getting the vote, um, and it's just that kind of complexity, because here we've got somebody who's brilliant, who's accomplished, um, but who doesn't think she should have the right to vote. Why do you think it is that, you know, these histories of women aren't remembered or recognised? I think it comes down fundamentally to the nature of what we're doing when we do history, and whether that's kind of somebody working in an academic context, it's somebody writing a historical fiction novel, it's somebody writing popular history, somebody making a f- historical film, um, whatever different kinds of media, is that we're, we're fundamentally cut off from the past, and so we are... Reconstructing—we're always in a process of reconstructing and reshaping that past, and we're building particular narratives. And I think because of the how narrative often works, and the fact that it's very easy to fall back on familiar tropes, on familiar ideas, and on the kind of the tried and tested narratives, it's very easy to just start reinscribing. It's like, well, we know what this was, and you t- start telling the same story again and again. Where that gets tricky, particularly in terms of remembering women, remembering other members of other marginalised groups, is that those narratives tend to reflect the kind of the dominant power structures within a society or the dominant, um, you know, who who, who gets to speak and who gets accounted as important. Because in terms of the narratives that we tell, they're being repeated again and again. They tend to keep, you get a kind of layering effect, and that people who've been forgotten once get forgotten again and again. You can see this very interestingly um, if you're just looking very narrowly at the history of geography, in terms of who gets included in the textbook, who gets included in one person's history, because anybody who's going to write a new history of geography or to focus on a particular part you go back to the text that you've already got, and so you get this kind of layering effect that it gets it just you just have to be forgotten once and you'll get continually excluded. It's hard to say that it's a deliberate effect to exclude people, because I don't think many I don't think people are sitting there toiling the moustaches think, wah wow, ha, we have to look we have to forget old women. Women should not be included. But I think it gets back to the thing about un- unconscious bias in terms of who gets to count as a geographer, and if you've got to include three people, who do you pick as your case studies? Um, and it just kind of reinforces itself again and again. There's a really fantastic book um, from the early 1980s by somebody called Joanna Russ, who was a science fiction writer, feminist, academic um, called How to Suppress Women's Writing. It's a delightfully provocative title, but it's she's all about how each generation of feminists kind of rediscovers these women anew. I mean, if you go back to kind of the 60s and the 70s and kind of second wave feminism you'll find all this work on these women travelers and they were really well known lots of them were very well known at the time uh, I mean that is to say the time that these women were kind of alive and active and at their own in their own time they were very well known a lot of the time but people don't know about them today and so then you get the second wave saying, oh look at all these women travelers aren't they cool and then 10 years later somebody else like, I found all these women travelers aren't they cool we've forgotten about them and it happens again and again and again and I think sometimes it's this process of we're not acknowledging the work that's gone before us which because it's very hard and we've only got so much time in the day and so much room in our heads but it's that kind of process of you have to keep remembering say, actually, no, we, we do know this. Yes, we do know this. We've got the sources. Here are the sources. Um, it's one of the areas where I really disagree with Kaplan Moran um, in terms of her book, uh, How to Be a Woman. She has this section about, oh, women really haven't done anything until the very recent period. And we should just admit that women haven't really done anything. And I can see what she's doing in terms of political strategy, rhetorical device to say, well, you know, we still can't, we still matter. And obviously we've not done anything because patriarchal oppression. But I really don't think we need to concede that ground. Uh, women have been re- tremendously active in all these different areas throughout human history and it's just that we're not recording it, We're not, and even if it's being recorded, even if it's there in the archives or in the collections or in the textbooks, it's getting forgotten again and again. How important is it to mark then, you know, International Women's Day, which is being
0: celebrated on today, mm. the 8th of March, which is when this podcast is going out, And also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the 6th of February this year, 2018, which Mm. marked the centenary of women, why are these dates so important to celebrate and remember women's contributions, and
1: what are some of the ways to do that properly? Having these deliberately earmarked spaces, having these kind of moments in which we're deliberately trying to reflect, it opens up the space to do this, and I think having, it's not quite like having calendar reminders that you, oh yes, I really must do that thing, but... Having something like a centenary, which is an obvious hook for, oh, why don't we think more about the struggle for women's suffrage? Oh, it's a centenary. It's the kind of thing that it's it's a TV producer's dream because it's an obvious hook as to why now? Why do we need to do it today? It's about opening up those spaces and opening up those opportunities uh, to talk about these things. I think having it as kind of a conscious strategy that you're going to look at these forgotten figures and you're going to try and broaden out the histories that we tell. History is a storytelling practice. In different forms, different ways, but that's what we're doing when we do history. As I say, having the kind of the hook of a centenary or the hook of a particular date as to why we've got to do this now and today is really, really valuable. And there's lots of different ways that people can get involved with this. Obviously, doing your own research is so much fun. It's fantastic. Working with kind of historical materials is just... You feel like you're on a treasure hunt or you feel like you're being a detective because you're piecing it all together. You're working from all these different fragments, particularly when you're trying to work on women's history and fragments might very well be all you have. Um, so, like, if I was looking to find out which expeditions had women on, sometimes it'd be really obvious. It's like, Gertrude Bell is going on a journey to this, and she would like some support for this, please. Okay, great, we've obviously got a woman involved there. But other expeditions would be like, you'll go through rooms and rooms and minutes in terms of such and such person is putting together a project to go to Greenland, and is really excited about this project going to Greenland, and we're going to learn them some instruments, we're doing this, we're doing that. And then you look at the, there's kind of a one line, say, so, oh, yes, and, you know, his wife is a member of the team. And you think...
0: Why didn't you say so? So you've mentioned there that when you're trying to not discover women in the archives but trace their histories Mm. in the archives, it's very much, oh well such and such's wife was on the team etc etc. And it seems that in some cases women's history is quite bound in kind of familiar relationships and social relationships and you know that's Mm. allowed them access to space, which is kind of what women are kind of interested in, these social Mm. relationships. How important are these different types of networks? How do they endure, and how are they transformed?
1: I think they're incredibly important, particularly when you've got institutional barriers. So, I mean, if we go back to kind of the fellowship thing, so the, the fellowship of the Royal Geographical Society in terms of what that could actually get you and in terms of why 1913 was so important as kind of a watershed moment for geography that society is recognising women's achievement. I mean, it's, it's tremendous symbolic importance um, that women say, yes, women can be geographers, um, because if, if you say, oh, that woman's a geographer, maybe I could be a geographer too. Um, but in terms of what that got you, it meant that um, you could borrow books from the society's library. It meant that you could come to lectures without having to be invited by a male fellow. Um, it meant that you could kind of get involved with some of the things the society offered, like its surveying training, which is incredibly important if you're wanting to go do field work or go on an expedition. Um, it, and it's particularly important um, in the context of 1913, 1941, when of course the suffrage movement to set its height, um, because women who were not fellows or guests of fellows or otherwise known to the society weren't allowed in the building because they were worried about militant suffragette activity thinking about kind of the significance of that, so that these are all the things that previously women couldn't have because they were institutionally barred from doing it, so obviously they, they as everybody does, you, you, you work around it, you find the way to be able to do what you want to do regardless of whether you've got the direct access yourself. And so what's really striking is that they work with their male colleagues, they work with their male family members, their male friends who get them access. So. Um, for example, Isabella Byrd, um, one of her male colleagues, would borrow books on her behalf to lend them to her, because she couldn't do so in her own right. Um, and this is something that really strikingly continues past 1913 when Women Get the Writer Fellowship. Um, they continue to work with their male colleagues and their male family members. And so these kind of, these social networks, so some of them are professional working relationships, some of them are more social networks, as you say. Um, and it's really important, I mean also if you kind of step take a step back and look at this it's really important for everybody's kind of academic work or everybody's professional work to have these networks and these these kind of collegial networks but it's really striking that in the early 20th century a lot of the women who I looked at who went on expeditions were doing so as part of a team that included some of their male family members whether that was their husband or whether it was their brother or even sometimes their father so those kind of familial networks are incredibly important when you still got a, lot, a lack of opportunities, to some of the kind of professional opportunities and you've got institutional barriers going on um and I think there's some really nice examples um certainly from some of the women I looked at where women are, as well as working kind of with male colleagues um and male family members where women are explicitly working with their female peers so a really nice example of that is Gertrude Kate and Thompson there are so many Gertrudes in this period and um, in my studies it's, it's just ridiculous they're all called Gertrude um but So she was an archaeologist um, who's primarily active in the 20s and 30s in terms of her fieldwork. She's very important in terms of a lot of the work that she does in North Africa um, and in the Middle East. Um, and she has a very deliberate policy of working with other women and supporting other women and mentoring other women. And for her, I mean, she's very different to Gertrude Bell in this regard in that she's very much interested in women's rights and women's suffrage. She marches um, for women's suffrage... Um, in the kind of 1910s when she was a bit younger um, and so she's, she works and collaborates with lots of colleagues whether those are kind of what we might call peers, people like Eleanor Gardner or Dorothy Bate who were also active archaeologists or geologists in this period but she also mentors younger women. She's very important in terms of mentoring Mary Leakey who of course went on to be a very important paleontologist but also Kathleen Kenyon. So you get these kind of these networks um, some of which are a little bit about circumventing the system but some of them it's just they they like working with each other and it's, you know, your professional networks have become very important to you. And that's where something, again, the kind of, the more formal ways of getting around these networks. So you have things like the women's colleges at, say, Oxbridge or Bedford College. So uh, Gertrude Caton thompson is affiliated with Newnham College at Cambridge, which of course was then a women-only college still is today. And so they have these kind of formal female networks as well as these more informal ones where it's just kind of partnerships that develop organically over time. It gets tricky in terms of as we're moving forward into the present about whether these institutions and these networks are still formally needed, in some ways they are, some ways they aren't. Um, But certainly the more informal networks is something that remains hugely important, I think, for women today in terms of working with each other Um, and your male colleagues and building kind of supportive relationships with them obviously remains incredibly important as well.
0: I think what you've described here is how all of these relationships are important because they... um, not allow women access to space, but facilitate their access to space. And I guess as a feminist geographer, I wonder if you could say something about
1: why this is kind of a spatial problem. It's very much a spatial problem. I mean, if you look... Going back to looking at society in kind of the early 20th century, so yes, women could now join as fellows. They'd already been able to go to the lectures. It is fundamentally about different spaces within the society and within the very building at different times. So yes... You know, prior to 1913 women could come to lectures so they could come into the lecture theatre, they could go to the lecture they could go away again. W- women when they can become fellows they can go in the library, they can borrow the books, they can go to the lectures and then they go away again but there's certain spaces within the organisation that they don't get access to until much later and that's things like the governing bodies, like the council. We don't get a, see a woman on the council of the RGS until 1930. Um, again possibly for slightly cynical reasons uh, the first woman on council is somebody called Wilhelmina Patrick-Ness uh, better known in the sources as Mrs. Patrick Ness, um, who is independently wealthy. She's an independently wealthy widow who does a lot of travelling, adventures, travel and expeditions in her own right. And she's actually the founder of the Ness Award, which of course is one of the society's awards today. And so she's given a lecture to the society and she's quite miffed with them. This is in the letters in the, downstairs in the archives. She's quite miffed with them because they've not promoted it properly. Um, and she writes, you know, I'm not really not very happy about this. And I'm also minded to rethink my support of some of the grants programme. And then the sources go silent and next thing you know she's on the council um and you just think hmm interesting
0: so when you visit the society you can see how the building itself can be read in terms of its history but also in terms of how spaces are coded in particular Mm. ways and there's been kind of very recent intervention into this so i wonder if you could tell me a little
1: bit about the portraits that were added to the stone staircase in 2013 sure so of course 2013 the centenary of 1913 it's centenaries again as providing these really important moments for reflecting on these things but also as as you say for kind of intervening um in these stories um so as part of the centenary celebrations for the admission of women um there was the 100 plus program of events which was carried out by what was then the women in geography study group one of the research groups of the rgs which is now the gender and feminist geographies research group which was a whole program of events um, at the 2013 annual conference but also lo- in lots of other areas and one of the Of that group, which both you and I were members, um, was to put uh, to try and address a bit of the kind of the the visual representation within the society. Because I think, as well, especially if you're coming to the society as kind of a young geographer um, and you're thinking, Oh, it's geography for me? It helps to see people like you reflected in the history of geography that's being told on the walls of this building. If the society is a really important institution for geography and so if you're not seeing yourself represented here in the kind of the stories that we tell on the walls of this building um it's, it's it doesn't help in terms of encouraging and inspiring the next generation of geographers which is a really important thing to do. So as part of the 100 plus celebrations, both in terms, which were about looking back on the last century of women's geographical work and all of women's geographical achievement, but also looking forward to the next 100 years and beyond of women's geographical work, which is going to be awesome. Um, we put together a series of portraits, which are now in, in a frame on the stone staircase as you go up to the members of the society, which was about recognising a lot of the female firsts in terms of women at women gaining access to these spaces both within the society um, but within geography more broadly so looking at Jane Franklin as the first woman to, to receive a medal from the RGS, looking at Isabella Bird as one of that cohort of first female fellows back in the 1890s, looking at the first women to edit each of the Society's journals um, in terms of Linda McDowell, Alison Blunt and Rita Gardner, recognizing Rita Gardner as the first female director of the Society, Judith Rees is the first president um, of the combined RGS-IBG, Alice Garner is the first president of the IBG, um, the Institute of British Geographers, um, uh, previously, um, looking at recognising Eva Taylor as the first woman to become a professor of geography in the United Kingdom back in the early 20th century. So it's about making these women and their stories very visible and making them kind of part of the, the fabric of the building. and And it's also about... More accurately represent, representing what that history was um, in terms of yes, the women were involved. The women were here all along, um, and they you know they've been playing an important part not just in recent years but all the way back through the history of this organisation. If you had to choose three influential female geographers that you'd like to celebrate that have
0: helped you as a feminist geographer, as a as an important geographer of the discipline, who would
1: those three women be? Oh, there's so many to choose from, and so this is just going to be. This is going to inevitably have lots of emissions because there, I think there are hundreds of women who have been influential on me personally in terms of my geographical research and kind of practice as a geographer. But just to kind of pick on three who I think have been particularly important to me in terms of that research, I'm, I'm going to say Gertrude Kenton Thompson as being a tremendously interesting figure. Uh, she's not as well known as some of the contemporaries like Gertrude Bell or Freya Stark within with whom, incidentally, she had a very fractious relationship on a disastrous expedition in the 1930s. They fell out big time um, and didn't speak to each other for 50 years. She's really interesting because she's so accomplished and because you know, she's influential within archaeology and geography, but also because of that deliberate choice she makes to support other women and to work with other women, while still building very cordial working relationships with her male colleagues, particularly Arthur Hinks, who was the secretary of the society at that time, so the equivalent of director today. I think probably my PhD supervisor, Avril Madrill, whose work on kind of women's past geographical work has been tremendously influential within the history of geography and really important in terms of recognising... A lot lot of my kind of, like, practice as a historical geographer in terms of how I think about history comes from Avril's work. Um, And she was, more importantly, kind of more personally speaking, she was a tremendously supportive mentor and colleague and friend. And that's really important, I think, in terms of your geographical work. So number three is, again, going back to my own research, is somebody called Phyllis Wager, who is not a particularly influential figure within the history of geography, um, but who I find very interesting... Um, And in terms of kind of, again, speaking about these kind of these excavating these forgotten traces and about telling these stories because as well as te- as kind of recovering the kind of the iconic women who were important and who had a massive impact I think it's also about recovering a lot of this, um, the kind of the term in the literature is the smaller stories which are also important in terms of how geography's actually happened and who's actually been doing geography It's 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 great to talk about the icons and the really important people but it's also important to talk about the people who are less important but nonetheless were doing geography in lots of really interesting ways they may not have had a massive impact on the discipline, but they are really interesting. So that's somebody called Phyllis Wager um, who was, I mentioned about the, the expedition to Greenland was, oh, and so, so-and-so's wife is coming along. So that, that Phyllis Wager was that example in terms of an expedition to Greenland in 1935 um, on which she was a member of the expedition team alongside her husband, um, her brother and sister-in-law and some other colleagues of there. So there were four women in, this is in terms of the kind of European, the Western, uh, the British part of the team. Um, And she's interesting to me because just as I was getting started on the kind of the empirical part of my research here in the collections, it just so happened that in the foil reading room downstairs, they often have a kind of small exhibition or installation or they did at that time and they had a display case full of boots They're in the collections. One of the really cool things about the collections is it's not just kind of your archives in terms of manuscript and printed non-published material or kind of the maps which obviously the the big part of the collection have got a million sheets of mapping but you've also got the artefact collection which are objects that either belonged to explorers or geographers or were on particular expeditions or have been brought back from different parts of the world to the society. Um, So they had this exhibition of boots um, one of them um, was considerably smaller than all the other boots because all the other boots were men's boots from all these various heroic expeditions. But there's this pair of boots sitting in the display case that look about my size, and they actually look very like the ankle boots that I've got on because it's you know it's October and it's cold and it's London and it's muddy, so I've got my ankle boots on. I think oh, apart from kind of the hobnails that somebody's added to those, those look I quite like those whose are those? They're really small. So i will go over and have a look and that. Like, oh, Phyllis Wager, I wonder who she was. Um, and find, after doing some digging and kind of piecing stuff together over the course of the next few months, so she was on this expedition to Greenland and was involved in the kind of the geographical work. She was also doing a lot of what you might call the kind of support work of the expedition, which is absolutely fundamental to an expedition happening in terms of who's doing the cooking. And this is often part of what um, Felix Driver and Larry Jones are called the hidden histories of exploration in terms of this is often being done by local people um, and this expedition is also the Case, they were working with the local um, Inuit people in the area and collaborating on this expedition. She's really involved in the work of the expedition. She's there for several months. And then, um, when her husband comes to give the lecture to the society um, subsequently, um, so in kind of early 1937, he gives the lecture and then they invite her to come up onto the stage to give a few comments about her experiences on the expedition. And kind of reading some other sources later she'd just given birth about three weeks before and then came up and kind of stood on the stage in front of all these people and spoke about her experiences on the expedition and how much she'd enjoyed it um, and I think one of her other colleagues said you know, if, if anybody can get their husbands to take them to um, the Arctic it's a great time kind of thing but just in terms of thinking about those kind of the marginal figures who are, they're not going to have had a tremendous influence on geography but they're still really interesting and I think their stories are still really important as well Going forward, what can geography
0: students do to learn more about these small stories, these hidden histories of the subject, and recognise all the different and diverse ways that the discipline's been shaped and the people that have shaped it?
1: Um, Well, I mean, there's a huge amount of stuff that's being written on the history of geography, and a lot of which, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, is all about engaging explicitly with these small stories and with these forgotten histories, and about bringing folk who have been overlooked back into... um, the narratives that we tell each other um and so moving away from kind of the great men narratives um and into looking at these more, these broader, these more collaborative um, stories. So, certainly, you know, there's tons of really great work being done on this, so you should read that. If you want, if you're really into historical geography, and you should be, you should come and visit the collections here and find out more about some of the materials we've got. And kind of, there's tons of stuff that we've got down there, which hasn't been looked at or touched since it was first put down there, because we've got two million items, so there's just too much stuff for any one person to know everything about. But I think as well, When you're kind of thinking and reading about geography in kind of like contemporary basis as well as the history of geography, just be thinking about okay, which stories am I not being told? Whose work is really cool but is being overlooked? And obviously, it's hard sometimes to dig that out, but just kind of being open to looking at other work and kind of going beyond the kind of standard stories I think is really important. I guess it's more about having a particular outlook on how you think. what, what you think of geography, who you think geographers are and kind of being attentive to that um, and kind of when you see stuff you know, when you see kind of examples you think, oh that's really cool, I wonder what that is and kind of following your nose What do you think it means to be a feminist geographer? Certainly for myself, it's about making the strategic choice to focus on women um, women continuing to be kind of like a marginalised group in lots of different ways and obviously about thinking intersectional Intersectionally about what we mean by that, um, but I think it's also about applying kind of a feminist analysis to the pro- problems that you work on in terms of looking at the power relations that are governing a particular space or society or problem and just being attentive to and attuned to. So kind of using the tools of kind of feminist analysis and feminist methodology as part of your toolkit I guess having those in your back pocket as part of the research that you do and just being consciously aware of the fact that there's not a level playing field here in operation and that's something to be attentive to that you're not going to get at the whole story unless you're paying attention to those kind of dynamics and I mean a lot of my work has been on women it's been on a very particular set of women in terms of a lot of these women were kind of the white, upper middle class middle class women, they're enormously privileged in so many ways, they wouldn't have had access to these spaces otherwise, and so in some ways that's kind of an omission Um, but yeah, just thinking about all these different kind of aspects of people's experiences and how that shapes them, it's not about it's not there's often it's, it's easy to characterize thinking oh well only women could know about this that's not what I mean it's that if you stand in a particular place you're going to have particular perspectives on things and so just looking at that and what they might be and you know bearing in mind there's going to be a lot of complexity and new, nuance when you're looking at any given person or any given problem but just being aware of and attentive to those structures so kind of having that structural component as well as kind of the specific component as part of your analysis as part of your toolkit.
0: For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore ibg schools for the latest updates. This recording was supported by the Global Learning Programme. For more resources to encourage pupils' understanding of global issues and development, visit www.glp.globaldimension.org.uk. Thanks for listening.